Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 38, I interview Ben Hutt, the CEO and Managing Director of Evergen. We discuss how he went from cleaning up after pigs on a farm as a 12-year-old with dreams of leaving his small town to a whirlwind journey of big four management consulting and banking in Australia. We talk about what he learned from doing his MBA, entrepreneurial advisory, taking a recruitment tech company all the way to public listing via a $100 million IPO before watching it crumble back down to zero. How he had to start again from scratch after a hard failure and being brought in for a turnaround mission as CEO of Evergen, which is on a mission to solve climate change and become a billion-dollar company. If you are interested in using software to enable smarter energy by orchestrating large fleets of batteries to enable virtual power plants, check out evergen.com.au. That's E-V-E-R-G-E-N.com.au. So I'm here with Ben Hart, the CEO and Managing Director of Evergen. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you got involved with Evergen? What did you study? What type of companies, organizations were you involved in? Doing what sort of roles? Yeah, so I'm pretty old now, early 40s. So (laughs) I studied psychology as an undergrad because I believed that kind of people make the world go around and I could I could see how the rapid technological change we were seeing in the late 90s early noughties was really going to transform the way lots of businesses operated um, then trained as a tech focused management consultant uh, with PwC Consulting in London um, worked all over Europe and North America and then um, in 2003 my mum died which was kind of a bit of a bit of a change and so I took a sabbatical and, and in the process of kind of sorting her life out I ended up um, helping a friend fix a business that was a building company. So making a building, kind of renovating old houses mm-hmm. and building staircases and stuff like that. So I had the, my first experience of running a business as a 24-year-old, um, which was really, really challenging. And then um, when I finished dealing with all that, I actually sold the business. So mm-hmm. I grew the business about 100 times in, mm-hmm. in 18 months. Didn't make a dollar of profit, but <laughs> did a lot of customers and, and grew from, I think, four staff to about 25 staff. So like growth, but didn't know anything about profit. And then came out here to um, Australia in 2004 permanently, did an MBA, and then came out of that and worked for some ex-McKinsey guys for a couple of years and then spent six years at Macquarie in their strategy and kind of fix-it team, um, which was an amazing time through the GFC. I got involved in lots of very interesting problems. Um, And then got approached by someone who just invested in a tech startup in 2012 who needed a co-founder. Um, I'm obviously the kind of get shit done guy. I'm an execution focused guy. I'm very good at teams and, and getting stuff done. Um, the guy who needed the co-founder in that business was very visionary around product. He was an ex-recruitment um, guy who really could see that there was a future for the recruitment industry. It was a bit like Uber. Mm. And so we got together and effectively co-founded um, what ended up being quite a big recruitment marketplace called The Search Party in, in 2012. And I took that business to the UK, US, Canada, ultimately listed in Australia in 2016, which was a mistake, good mistake, but like it was a mistake, and then ran a listed company for nearly a year um, before that all sort of fell apart. And that was the first time I got to see like we built a $100 million business that then went to zero. Uh, It was incredibly painful for everyone involved, about 140 staff and me and all our shareholders. We all lost everything. Um, And then from that, I went into kind of helping a business called Slingshot, who you may be familiar with in the startup ecosystem. Mm-hmm. They used to run big corporate innovation programs for tier one corporates, people like Qantas, News Corp, Caltex, Lion. Um, and I ran all their innovation programs for nearly three years. So I got to see 6,000 entrepreneurs pitch and work with 200 of the best startups in Australia together with big corporates. And during that sort of period, I was grieving for the death of my my, my baby, which was Search Party. And surrounded by these amazing entrepreneurs and what became clear to me during that period is that I'm really really good at fixing stuff that's wrong in businesses and I'm really good at spotting good people and building great teams and so it was through that that I subsequently kind of fixed the startup that happened to be kind of the best friend of one of my chairman um, one of my chairman's friends and so I got a phone call from AMP Capital who are the 
majority shareholders in Evergen saying, hey, Ben, um, we hear you're really good at kind of growth and scaling things. Like, can we have a conversation about Evergen? And so one coffee led to lunch and a few rounds of kind of analysis around the business. And um, and then I agreed to take over CEO and managing director from 1st of April last year. So no joke intended, but it's just the way it kind of <laughs> panned out. And, and since then, I've been wholly dedicated to kind of building an amazing team around this, this problem that we can talk about more um, and sort of turning what Evergen was into to what it is now and what it should be in the future. Yeah, so there's about 25 fascinating detours I'd love to sort of circle back on there. So you mentioned being interested in psychology when you were very young. Um, so at the time, I imagine as a teenager, was that just an interest in people? Um, did that express itself? Were you doing a teenage job in sales, marketing, or um, were you studying psychology at school, reading books in your free time? How did that interest sort of manifest as a young man? Uh, I'd say it was kind of more self-driven. Like I had a pretty interesting childhood. Lots of weird stuff happened in my childhood. And um, kind Anything of in particular to... you can sort of go on the record with or is it more uh, stuff it just, off the yeah, record? I mean, this, like it's my life's all, all pretty public. But no, I, I grew up with um, a mum who had MS. I was only mm. a child. Um, so I spent kind of, I think my... My teenage years kind of turned into lots of adult responsibilities, probably sooner than most people's does. Like I had my first job when I was 12. I worked every every school holiday from the age of 12 until I was 18. Basically, I've worked my whole life. And what it forced me to think really hard about is um, two things. One of them is, what am I really good at? Mm-hmm. And the second one is, what do I think the world's going to look like in 10 years from now? And what was really clear um, to me as I was kind of growing up was, Technology was about to massively overhaul the way lots of businesses worked. So if you think about sort of late 90s in England, it was all about the evolution of the call center as a Mm. way of banks doing business. It seems like an obvious thing now, but literally as I was just getting ready to go to uni, that was a new concept. And so technology and and the the work required to, even the internet was kind of new. When I got to uni in 95 or 96, it was, you could still email within the department, but you couldn't email across the university campus, kind of little things like this that we take for granted now. Um, but I could see that tech was was going to be everything. If you think about it now, the business models that are possible. Um, so the tech was always the thing, but people people make the world go around. That was always my thing. It still is my thing. Um, so I think that was always why I was interested. And, and so what were those roles? Like, again, not many people start working when they're 12. What kind of jobs were you doing? And how did that initial interest, I guess, in the future kind of come about? Because a lot of people are you know, very busy in the present, like I'm sure you were. A lot of people are kind of stuck in their past maybe in some time. So what, what kind of kept you focused on the future? And, and what were those sort of early formative sort of roles and jobs that you were doing to make ends meet? Yeah, so I think... Um, my mum basically had a really good idea about how to motivate me as a kid. I grew mm-hmm. up in this little tiny village in countryside, Oxfordshire in England with about 400 people and mm-hmm. four pubs. Everyone knew each other <laughs> by first name. And um, she was like, look, I really want you to travel and have all these opportunities. Like I was lucky. I went to good schools. Mm-hmm. So we had lots of kind of opportunities to go abroad for various reasons. And she's like, I want you to do everything, but I want you to take responsibility for paying for half of it. Mm. So her deal with me was really simple. She's like, you can do all these things and I'll pay for half of everything, mm-hmm. but you got to earn your own money. And so when I was 12, the only job I could get to was on a pig farm mm-hmm. that was about a 15-minute walk from my house. Mm-hmm. And if you can imagine being a 12-year-old on a pig farm, there's only really two things you do. Yeah. There's cleaning up shit and there's cleaning up shit. And so yeah. for 12 weeks, I just did a really good job of cleaning up shit and got invited back the following holiday, got paid 50% more because they realized I was mm-hmm. quite useful. And then I did that literally for three school holidays. And then I realized when I was doing my research that I could earn twice the hourly rate if I cycled four miles on my bike. And so then my next job, which paid me twice as much as the first one, I was literally packing um, bottles into six packs on a production line. Mm-hmm. I did that for 12 weeks and that paid for me to go away for eight weeks. The following year, I ended up building computers on a production line in a, in a company that was building computers for universities called Research Machines. Did that for three years, so I understand. And so for, for me, it was always about every single job had to teach me something, um, but it was also like what transferable skills is it going to get me, mm-hmm. but like am I maximizing the value of my time? Um, and that sort of notion of opportunity cost was something that was that was something that always meant a lot to me because I knew that I only had a finite period and it was very, very clear to me. I was very goal-oriented that if I was working for eight weeks, the goal was to fund half a trip 
somewhere it was a very a very close relationship between input and output so was the psychology interest around self-motivation how do i work harder how do i drive more how do i um motivate myself to higher levels of thinking or was it trying to understand other people like you said being useful to your employers being understanding maybe customers understanding colleagues or, or was it sort of both sides of well, the interest every single job i ever did probably with the exception of the pig farm there were teams involved mm-hmm. so there are teams trying to produce products teams trying to solve problems um, you might be selling to teams of customers. There's just people everywhere in every business. It's mm-hmm. people. So the, the common thread for me was pretty obviously people. Um, and like you probably know as well as anyone that you can tell the difference between people that try and block progress and people that mm-hmm. want progress to, mm-hmm. to happen, right? So just realizing that you know, there's always two types of people. Let's have a different strategy for dealing with them. I was just always very acutely aware that it was the, the person in every idea that either got in the way or made it happen. It wasn't necessarily the quality of the idea or the the value of solving a problem it was always it always comes back to the people yeah because at the end of the day even the best technology if the people don't adopt it buy it spread it you know use it you know it, the technology is sort of dead in the water um in a sense right? oh, correct and that's kind of a timely point right because i did my my thesis at the end of my psych degree um i was working i was actually working two jobs i was working as a cocktail bartender mm-hmm. at night and also working in a call center in a bank mm-hmm. um in sales right and the bank decided that they wanted to change the the CRM for all their sales teams and their help desk teams. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this is a golden opportunity for me. So I did like a longitudinal study where I interviewed and did psychometric questionnaires for all of the staff before, mm-hmm. during, and after this process. And it still shocks me that I actually got permission to do this, but I did. And I wrote my dissertation on it and I presented it back to the board of this particular bank um, in the north of England. And they made a complete hash of the project. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily that the tech wasn't better. The way that they managed the project basically meant that they lost the 40% of highest performing salespeople through the project. And which what, from what a did business they point do that is, did that? Is, what was their decision or failure to do something which drove those 40% of top performers to quit? It really comes down to, I mean, at the time, let's bear in mind this was a new mm. concept, right? Call centers were, were a new concept. Um, they really just didn't communicate very well. They didn't engage people along the journey. They didn't explain why this change needed to happen. They didn't get people bought into the future. They didn't have stakeholder representatives. Like like the whole, the, the management of the process was just really bad. So people didn't understand why they were changing and why they were going through all this retraining and why, like, and like we all know Simon Sinek says, start mm-hmm. with why if you want to do anything, right? They, they did a really shocking job of that. Um, and to some extent, it represents a management culture and, and sort of doctrine that just didn't work in big tech mm-hmm. projects because it was kind of like they might have been applying almost a Henry Ford model of what happens in a call center is you give someone a 250-page manual and that's their job. Like we know that people, good people, don't necessarily respond very well to being told what to do. They want to be told what the outcome yeah. is and how to achieve it. Um, but anyway, but that was a long time ago. It was 20 years ago now that that was happening. Um, but I'm sure lots of people working in corporate would still say quite often when things change. Um, it's not always clear why they change. And, and so maybe would you say they were afraid, they thought maybe their commissions were being cut, they thought maybe they'd be micromanaged, maybe their role was going to change. Is that why, what sort of pushed them away, that lack of communication, fear of they just sort of started to hallucinate worst-case scenarios? Or what would you say kind of from your study on those know, like, interviews? Pe- people working in call centres have a choice, don't they? And, and again, let's bear in mind this is 20 years mm. ago, so long time ago. Um, but they... The fact that they lost the 40% of best performing salespeople would suggest that um, salespeople didn't understand how the changes were going to help them do a better job and mm. make more money. Right? Um, maybe there was a fear that the, the system was going to take away some of their opportunity mm. to make money by automating some of the stuff they got paid commission for. Mm. I honestly don't know. Like It was literally 20 years ago, but it was demonstrable insight that um, in big tech projects or big changes where there's a fundamental shift in how things are happening, whether in a bank or nationally or internationally or globally, whatever it might be. Um, however good the tech is, you, you just you, you can't ignore the human element. And mm. that comes through to when we were building Search Party, which is a big recruitment, like Uber for recruitment, where we've got thousands of recruitment agencies and millions of professional candidates and you've got people trying to hire through a marketplace. If, if the people don't engage in the transaction because it's better for all of them, it doesn't work. Um, that's why like user engagement, rider engagement, driver engagement in Uber is so important is that Uber actually makes life better for everyone. That's why it's so sticky and so beneficial. And lots of tech products that people build don't achieve that. And that's kind of why 
um, again, still rings true to me every single day is that people make the world go around and, and what we do at Evergen is, is just as true as it is anywhere else. Mm. And, and so you were at uni, you're doing your studies, you've been working hard. At that point, did you know what you wanted to do in sort of management consulting or were you t- tossing up an academic career, different occupations or how did you sort of uh, aim and, and end up at sort of PwC in, in that consulting type role? Oh, I, I knew from about the age of 11 that I was going to do something that involved taking stuff apart and putting it back together again. Mm-hmm. I was that kid. You'd give me a toy for Christmas and by Boxing Day, I'd taken it apart and, and by New Year's Eve, I'd put it back together, either the same or better. Um, so I, I kind of always knew that. PwC was um, an interesting journey. Uh, probably first entrepreneurial fork in the road was that what I probably should have done is um, stay with the company that I'd spent 12 weeks building in the 12-week holiday I had mm. before I did a lap of the world and then went back to PwC. But again, my mum was very, very clear that um, I needed a big name on my CV and that's kind of sets you up for life. So PwC it was. And that was at the time where PwC Consulting, just as like Anderson Consulting was still mm-hmm. separate from the accounting firm, but part of the accounting firm. Mm-hmm. So some of the best training ever. I went to the US for quite a long time, consulted in a number of big enterprises in Europe, wrote Vodafone's European billing system. So I was actually a software programmer. Went through a really, really good kind of tech project life cycle with PwC and some awesome clients um, in London and elsewhere. It was a really good sort of training in excellence and diligence. Um, and then, as I said, I was doing pretty well there and then my mum died suddenly and so I, I took a sabbatical. Um, and ultimately... After that, it was I was then five or six years out of corporate studying and, and starting businesses and starting not, not-for-profits for people. And so that there was that building company you mentioned you grew rapidly in a short space of time but sort of w- weren't watching the bottom line and did that sort of, I mean, the growth sort of sucked out the cash out of the business and it sort of struggled or, or did it grow too fast for its capabilities or what sort of happened uh, with that? It was, a, it was a passion project, basically. I was... Um, renovating quite heavily my mum's house when she died um, to try and help it fulfil its promise. And and my builder um, was basically struggling to keep his business afloat mm-hmm. halfway through my building project. And so I was kind of like, well, look, I can't have you going out of business <laughs> while you haven't finished my house. Yeah, so if you yeah. finish my house, I'll save your business. And so I spent a year working in that business. And um, bear in mind, I'm like a 24-year-old kid. Mm. Um, so I've had lots of jobs and I've always worked, but I've never run a business before. Um, and we did all sorts of amazing projects. I put a library in John Simpson, the BBC World Correspondence House mm-hmm. in London. We did lots of amazing projects. Um, and the profitability of the projects was never my um, focus. I mean, I, I made a whole bunch of assumptions, which was um, kind of the wealthier the client, the more profit you make. Mm. Usually it's the inverse, because <laughs> right? you get right to the end and then they haggle about some small detail. Mm. and. and you need the money, so they, you let them off. Um, but kind of what we did was we built some amazing things during that period of time. We had lots of happy clients, and I ultimately kind of sold my chunk of the business at the end of my time and left to come to Australia because at my time, I just wanted to come live in Australia, basically, was my, my goal. But immediately that I got into my MBA, I remember sitting in the first economics class where you learn about supply and demand and price and <laughs> kind of profit and repeatability. Mm. And I immediately thought that, in my joinery business, the, the building company, if every time we made like a one-off dining table or a one-off anything for anyone, if we just made three of them instead of one and kind of sold the other two through a showroom and the client got the original, mm. then we'd have basically quadrupled our overall profit mm. because the, the cost in joinery is all in the setup. It's not in the materials. So if you set up and then you make three or you make five, like they're actually quite profitable. It's just the first one is like, extremely expensive to make and I didn't realize that until basically going through part of my MBA and so for me I think by the time I got to the MBA I'd made enough mistakes already both in a corporate environment um, and in a kind of a small business environment that it really landed with me things that we were learning and I was kind of really ready and and during that MBA period I helped a couple of people start not-for-profits um, wrote lots of different business plans. Like my plan was never to have a proper job ever again when I went into the MBA. And then unfortunately, I came out without a visa because of a technicality. And so I had to go back into consulting, um, but was lucky to work for some kind of ex-McKinsey guys and solve some problems in some really big companies in Australia for two years. And then when I got married, my wife said, hey, look, I want to have loads of kids, so you've got to stop getting on an airplane every week. 
get a proper job. Um, and so at that point in time, in 2007, Macquarie was arguably kind of the most loved and the most hated company in Australia to work in because of the million dollar bonuses and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so where better to work than Macquarie? And I got through that five years I was there, I got some really great exposure to some of the really fundamental problems around the world and opportunities, things like the whole blowing out of mortgage-backed securities, the global financial crisis, like sitting in the middle of an investment bank in a GFC, pretty hairy. Mm. Um, it's pretty exciting. And I learned a lot, worked with some amazing people. Um, but I think after five years in, in that environment, when approached by someone who had an idea for what could have been like a real unicorn, globally disruptive startup, kind of the entrepreneur in me couldn't resist, but kind of give it a crack. I found myself working weekends on the startup while I was still working 60 or 70 hours a week at Macquarie. Um, so there's just kind of this calling, I think, that some of us have that we want to want to make things and change things mm. and disrupt things and just kind of that's that's very much me and what brought you to australia originally was it again a childhood dream when you wanted to travel you wanted to explore you holidayed in australia sort of how did australia come up on your radar as a place to move to yeah purely by chance actually um so in 95 um i played a lot of rugby as a schoolboy and we had a very good schoolboy team um, hadn't been beaten for like three years. And we were supposed to go to South Africa on tour, um, but the apartheid got so kind of dangerous that mm. some of the parents refused to let us go. So as a fallback, we at the last minute changed our plans and came to Australia. And we spent um, nine weeks going up the East Coast or six weeks going up the East Coast from Sydney. And I just remember the first morning I woke up in Sydney after what was the, probably the longest flight in the world. I think we did six stops on mm. the way to Sydney sort of Garuda, cheap as chips, sitting at the mm. back of the bus. Um, I remember waking up at sunrise and going down to the ocean and just because um, I love swimming. Mm. Coogee Beach, sunrise, mm-hmm. people running around everywhere. Like It was just amazing. I just remember literally that day I phoned my mum and said, hey, mum, I'm going to move to Sydney. And, and that was it. And that was still 10 years before I permanently mm. Did that, but I so here was here in '95. Came back in '99 for a year. Was here for the millennium. Um, came back intermittently between 2001 and 2003, and then permanently moved out here in 2004. So Sydney, well, Australia has always been home. I now live in Newcastle, which mm-hmm. is like country town version of Sydney. <laughs> so, so yeah, life is good. Yeah, and looking back at your mum's advice to get a big brand name um, company on your resume and sort of set you up, and obviously you've worked at other. Um, plenty of other like Macquarie and uh, these other big sort of brands. Um, do you sort of agree with that yourself? I mean, if you were giving advice to someone now who's looking maybe at their first job, would you say like, yeah, aim for a big brand and then sort of, you know, go down or start, not down as in, uh, you know, quality, but down in a mid-market SMB or start small work your way up? Or, or what do you think on that sort of advice of having that big logo on your resume early on? Uh, it's a tough one, and I'm like I'm a parent now, so I've got three daughters. So mm. at some point, I will have to have this conversation. I think it kind of depends, um, but the way I would look at it is, if any path for you is ever going to be in a big company, if there's ever any chance that that is the right path for you, then you need to start there. Because mm. if you spend five years working in a small business, it's very very hard to then go and work in a big business. It just, it just doesn't happen because big businesses tend to hire graduates. So what we did at mm-hmm. Macquarie, same thing we did at PwC. So you hire the smartest graduates you can. You work, you hire three on the basis that two of them are going to burn out and die and you're going to keep the good one. That's basically <laughs> the model. So if you miss that opportunity, um, it's very, very hard to recreate it later. Whereas if you do what I did and I had like three and a half extremely good years in London, um, left with amazing references, won a prize for like best PwC consultant in Europe one year, like those things, no mm. one can ever take that away from you. So I could then take five years out of doing that. And then when I needed a job in a corporate five years later, I I was still credible enough to go and get that job in the corporate because I've been there and I've worked Mm. in some of the biggest corporates in North America and and Europe and stuff. So to be honest, that's probably what you should do. Um, It's unlikely that as a smart grad, you're ever going to leave uni with a big idea that you make a massive success Mm. and that's your only average job um, <laughs> does happen periodically but I think I think the failure rates are higher than most people think yeah and I guess the other thing is that like having that big logo is respected by small business and big business right so if you wanted to ever go down to a, a smaller boutique you can always go to that 
um, smaller size and still get recognition of the big brand on your resume. But again, going the other way around, like you said, it sort of it doesn't apply, you know, in both directions. So it keeps your options, yeah, open, I guess, in both sort of angles. And the, the, the filter I tend to use for things is um, if I take this opportunity, what's it going to teach me? Mm. Like, what am I going to come out of it with that I don't already have? Um, and I tend to choose things based on two things, really. One of them is potential payoff. Like as an entrepreneur, payoff, like risk-adjusted payoff is really, really important. Um, something I wish I'd understood better when I was younger. Um, but the second thing is like how much more useful or more knowledgeable am I going to come out of this opportunity, whether it goes well or badly. Mm. Um, and that's that's kind of a useful filter, I think, for making decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned Search Party as a recruitment platform. So that's one you sort of started uh, from scratch and, like you said, took it all the way to a, a public listing. Um, and then you said it sort of rapidly went down to zero. So, so can you talk through a bit of that sort of rapid growth and then rapid descent um, and, I guess, yeah, lessons learned? Yeah, or- so it was... It was an interesting one. I mean, so the business was originally founded by um, by two other guys, or well, mm-hmm. two or three other guys, Jamie, Stu, um, kind of good friends of mine. And then I joined about nine months into that. Um, I was employee number four. And then what we did is we basically, we, we were doing um, like CRM for recruiters and payroll systems for recruiters, like cloud-based software when cloud-based software was new. So mm-hmm. absolutely doing the right things. Um, and in that business, we... Two years in, um, we'd raised a heap of money and we, we decided that we weren't solving the right problem. We decided that the bigger problem was to basically be Uber for recruitment. So I had recruitment agencies on one side. And it was very, very technical business. Um, we definitely had the right idea. I think we we didn't focus enough on products. What I talked about earlier about like people loving loving the product or loving the app or loving the mm. website so that it, they chose to use it as opposed to doing whatever their alternatives are. Mm-hmm. Um, and in hiring, this is one of the things that I, I think we often used to say to the guys, look, man, we've cho- just chose one of the hardest problems ever to solve because in recruitment, you've got so many choices about where you get people from. Mm-hmm. Um, you can post a job, you can have an agency, you can have a referral from a friend. Like you've always got five or six channels open at any one point in time, even if you you tell people that you don't. And what that creates is sort of a natural ambivalence um, in the user. And we we had ambivalent users on both sides of the marketplace. So it's like great candidates. They kind of don't really need a recruiter because they if they want a job, they're going to get the job anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was just a challenging problem. But we made a lot of progress. I think over the five years that I ran that business for, we did nine rounds of capital, raised $25 million from some of the most sophisticated investors in Australia and elsewhere in the world. And and then we hit a classic Australian problem, which is that we knew we needed a lot more money Mm -hmm. because marketplaces are very capital hungry. Mm -hmm. And so we were faced with a choice, which was either to to go to the US and take US venture funding, Mm -hmm. which basically would have meant us flipping the company over to the US kind of transferring all the IP and we were like Aussie founded, Aussie shareholders, Aussie board. But that was one choice. And the other choice because of the immaturity at the time in 2016 of the sort of the venture funding in Australia was that getting a $10 million check written or a $20 million check written in Australia in venture didn't really happen then. Um, mm. So we were in the sort of same era as kind of to some extent some of the great unicorns now. Um, to people like Airtasker and mm-hmm. Canva to some extent. And these really, they've been well-backed, venture-funded companies in Australia. But that sort of era, the big money was hard um, because the funds were really small. And so at the time, there was a lot of hype in the listed market around um, one company in particular, which was a thing called OnePage, which you may remember kind of as a backdoor listing, listed mm-hmm. at $20 million. And then for kind of with almost no product, um, and a lot of broker support, that thing went from $20 million to $963 million Aussie dollars in value in a very short space of time. And then famously, they took about $60 million US off the table right at the last minute. And then the market collapsed around it. And so at the period where it listed, we were sitting as a board going, hey, guys, you know, there's this thing happening. We've got loads more product than they do. We've got loads more customers. We've got loads more revenue. Mm-hmm. And literally every board meeting, I used to take the share price. I used to go, hey, guys, you know, this is an alternative we should be considering. Mm. And then ultimately, we, we chose to take that path. And so we decided to list. Um, and what I would say in and around the listing process is it, being a listed company is very, very different to being a venture-backed company. Um, it was something that I 
personally underestimated the the kind of the challenges in dealing with thousands of public shareholders and dealing with kind of people talking about penny stocks on kind of notice boards and all of this, <laughs> this, this kind of stuff. Where sort of compliance, media, uns- you know, everyday investors, all that noise and kind of, is that what you mean? Just kind of banter online? Yeah, just kind I mean, of- that's, that's, that's part of it. I just, for me, I mean, in and around the listing and there's a kind of another podcast that I talk a lot about this on my LinkedIn if you want some more mm. details, but t- transitioning from having very short conversations that are very deep about a business with someone who's very sophisticated, understands the business model, understands the challenges. They see hundreds of companies like yours to, to sort of talking to the public about mm. it, which is effectively what you're going to do when you, when you listed mm. totally different ball game. Mm. And I personally found that very, very difficult because um, like marketplaces are very complicated businesses. Mm. It's like, it's very, very difficult to kind of have that conversation on the sort of level that you might have it with your granny. Um, but in and around our listing, I often tell a story that if it was a plane crash where everyone died, there'd be a guy standing with a clipboard kind of investigating the air crash and he'd be standing on the ground going, oh, no, it's really interesting. In this plane crash, there were nine separate things that went Mm. wrong one after another. And these planes were kind of designed to withstand any eight of these (laughs) nine things in any order. Mm. But that ninth thing, man, that we didn't never expected that. Mm. It It was kind of a bit like that. It's that over six to nine months, we had literally nine things that, didn't necessarily go wrong, but they just didn't go our way. Mm. And they compounded into this sort of tailspin of a loss of confidence with the market and a loss of confidence in the broker community. Um, and we did some some crazy things. Like we, after we listed three months later, like we were trading below listing price and we, the main shareholders, tipped in more money at the listing price to try and restore confidence. Mm. I spent every dollar of my super in, in shares every month um, and this is like hundreds of thousands of dollars we're talking about, mm. where as a director, my buying had to be disclosed. Mm. So I'm buying stock in the company I'm running to create, to recreate confidence. And it's one of those things where like we had Brexit happen. So mm. in the first quarter where we'd made growth targets, the Brexit vote went completely against everyone's mm. expectations. And my biggest company was in the UK. And so the UK company died because of the uncertainty around, mm. oh shit, what's going to happen in recruitment with Brexit? And we had a, literally nine things went mm. wrong um and then ultimately what happened is it comes back to people so it comes back to where this whole conversation started which is i had a falling out with with one of my uh, team who's one of my investors who's my best friend for nearly nearly three years and we had a falling out and a difference of opinion about what was going to happen mm. and ultimately i was tired so i resigned i stepped down from the kind of company that i'd poured my heart and soul in for 80 hours a week for five years. I stepped down thinking I was doing the right thing for the company. Ultimately, it turned out I wasn't. And and that person then ran that company to a zero in the 12 months after I'd left and everyone Mm. lost everything. And I was left powerless watching this kind of plane crash happen that I sort of knew was going to happen, but I was powerless to do anything about. And I was sort of trapped on the plane because all of my stock was escrows i couldn't Mm. sell any stock couldn't get my super back couldn't do anything i'm just sort of sitting powerless watching the plane that i kind of piloted off the ground just basically crashing and killing all of the staff and all the shareholders involved it was tremendously stressful so i've heard some people say that kind of the stock market is the best representation of human psychology because you have the the herd dynamics you have the panic you have the short term versus the long term you have you know, different signals, different, did, did you sort of see that as well? I guess, again, that that human mass psychology, mate, more the individual psychology captured in the stock market, watching the prices, the signals, the reactions, the, the world events, oh, the, sure. those sort of things. Like, there's so many layers to it. I mean, from like when I was out pitching retail investors at kind of conferences, our share price would literally go up 40% while I was talking mm. and then it would stop. And that's like shows that, like particularly in very illiquid small cap stocks, like the actions of a small number of people can have a disproportionate impact on the price. But the kind of thing about this is in the period where the price has changed, the fundamentals of the business haven't changed at all. Mm. But you, you you tend to watch the price. And I was taking very personally, like when our share price was going down, I took it very personally because I'm like, hang on a minute. Our progress is amazing. <laughs> what is your problem? Mm. Um, and that to, to kind of, disconnecting that's very hard and it was particularly hard in our business where we had this mandate that um, every staff member ended up becoming an option holder or a mm-hmm, shareholder mm-hmm. 
And so had about 120 people around the world at one point, all, all shareholders, all watching the share price every day. And so when the share price goes down and they're sitting in a business going, what's wrong? Like, why don't they like us? Mm. What, is, like, what is their problem? It's tremendously hard to manage that morale um, and, and try and stop people looking at the share price and actually focusing on what they've got to do. Um, it, was, it was difficult. And, yeah, I, I, I would advise anyone considering listing an early-stage unprofitable tech company to have a really good hard look at themselves in Australia um, because the market's kind of not ready in my view, or at least it wasn't ready when we did that in 2016, to, to kind of buy a long story that wasn't obviously profitable or wasn't something mm. they could analyze in their traditional way that you would dissect an ASX 50 company. Mm. No, excellent. I really appreciate obviously going to all those twists and turns. I know we're just so starting to get onto Evergen, but I thought it was just such a fascinating background. It'd be great to dive into some of those and obviously wish you had even more time. But, but so moving back to Evergen, so you mentioned how you started to get involved with that um, what was your sort of decision-making process and in getting involved with it? Again, it came across your desk, right, and there were some troubles and, and you wanted to sort of get involved and help. How did you sort of see that as a good opportunity to help? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, Evergen was founded um, through a collaboration between CSIRO and AMP Capital, who mm-hmm. were big infrastructure investors. Back in 2014, they started working on stuff and they were really interested in um, how the electricity system was going to evolve with the kind of, rapid growth in rooftop solar and other technologies that were fundamentally going to change the kind of dynamics of the grid. Um, And they started out with this great piece of software that was developed in partnership with CSIRO that really makes battery assets behind the meter work better. So if you buy solar and a battery system, stick it in your house, there was a piece of software that we had that makes that work better. So creates about 25% more energy, saves you more money, Mm -hmm. makes the return on investment better. And and that was basically what they started Evergen with. but then they kind of made a series of interesting choices. And um, I have a lot of history in working with corporates and startups. And quite often the two things don't go particularly well together. Like corporates rarely build good startups is, mm. is kind of the, the lesson. And, and what they decided to do was that they would commercialize that software by selling hardware. So the idea was we'll sell solar and battery to homeowners and to property developers. We'll embed the software in that. But by selling the hardware, we'll make enough profit that ultimately we're going to build a profitable business which I wouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying they did the wrong thing. Like they, I think they did, it was very helpful because what it did is it, it seeded a few hundred batteries out there and it gave us lots of data. But by the time I got asked to have lunch with the, the chairman, the business had been going three and a half years. It sold about 300 of these systems and, and had a series of failed capital raises where basically none of the venture investors were giving them any money. And so the, the question I was asked to answer was why? Mm-hmm. And I had a history, obviously, of working with lots of entrepreneurs and working with venture funds and working with corporates. So this was a sort of conversation I'd have quite frequently. And I got given all of the documents and the business plan and just spent a few hours going through it and then had lunch with the chairman. I said, hey, look, there's seven reasons why this business is kind of never going to work. And I gave him the seven reasons, went on my way. Two weeks later, got the phone call saying, oh, hey, Ben, <laughs> we um, we'd like you to think about coming and running this business. And I, I said, I'm very flattered. but no (laughs) and he said why and i said well because i can't i can't have another failure like like there's seven Mm. things wrong with this Uh, and i can't have another failure personally because i've just spent five years effectively failing in great big style (laughs) i don't want to do that again um and so conversation went away and then two weeks later they came back and said hey ben you know we'd, we'd really like you to do this thing can you have a think about it and so i spent a lot of time looking into it and it kind of comes back to answer your question is really like what does this business have in its favor? Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about being Evergen is that climate change is undeniable. Um, much as some people might deny climate change, frankly, climate change is happening. It's a lot quicker than everyone thinks. Um, the planet is on fire. I'm worried about my daughters and their children. So if climate change is an undeniable truth, then at some point, humanity will mobilize itself very aggressively to try and stop the planet burning. And I'd argue that that process has already begun. Um, anyone that's been following the Tesla share price over the last three years will, will see that there is clearly a shift in people's thinking that now Tesla, whether this is right or wrong, Tesla is apparently a more valuable car manufacturer than Toyota, which is kind of an interesting thing, right? So thematically, massive opportunity. Um, 
and then I came down to, well, so is the specific problem that they are solving a valuable part of the overall problem set, right? Because mm-hmm. energy is one of the top three causes of carbon emissions, which is arguably the cause of climate change. So energy is the number one of those things. So does what Evergen has the capability to do actually have any impact at all on whether carbon production in energy is going to decrease or increase over time? And in simple terms, the answer to that is yes, like Evergen with its software brilliance has got a lot of opportunity to basically decarbonize society. Um, our mission in Evergen is to basically destroy a coal-fired power station in each of 10 countries over the next three years. And the way that we do that is very simply using software to control batteries as part of the energy system. Batteries are very, very helpful at sucking up surplus energy and stabilizing the grid whenever it's required. So we believe that batteries are going to be a significant enough part of the system that I can basically be motivated to get out of bed every day because what we do contributes to global change. Um, And I think obviously there's a big financial opportunity for Evergen, but I I think for me and people my age and our teams sort of filled with people in their late 30s, early 40s have been around the track, done Mm -hmm. businesses, startups before. I think the overall purpose and our our mission um, is very, very motivating. And I think the fact that we can make a lasting impact, we can have a legacy, we can make a difference. And ultimately, we're solving one of the most complex problems that's ever faced humanity. Well, that motivates people. Um, and again, it comes back to people. So I'm very proud of the team we have now at Evergen. We're about nearly 50 people, um, almost all of whom have been involved in tech businesses before, had failures, had successes. Some of the smartest people I've ever work with some of the people I'm closest to in life. Like we're all united around solving this really big, ambiguous problem. Um, and, and I think that's great. And again, people make the work around. So I, me by myself, I couldn't make much of a dent in that problem. But give me some capital, 50 extremely smart people. Um, and we've now got thousands of customers. And by Christmas, we'll be well on the way to our kind of 50,000 batteries and our coal-fired power station in Australia. Like, get momentum behind a problem like this, um, it's amazing and you can make a big difference relatively quickly, I think. Yeah, and so once you were convinced, um, again, you, you found, I guess it tapped into that sort of passion you had and, and they brought you on board. Um, how quickly were you able to sort of solve those seven issues? Were, were there some of those issues were not issues? Were there more issues? Were some harder to fix? Again, going back to people, tech, sort of group change. What was the process like knowing already kind of what the issues are, which is, I guess, unique versus someone who starts from scratch and then kind of builds from zero like you've done before. But what was that process in the first 12 months, the good and bad of saying, okay, we love your list of issues. Now it's on you to <laughs> fix those issues. What, what was the ups and downs of that journey like? Oh, it was extremely painful. Um, and like I've been lucky is that one of my conditions of taking the job was that I had um, the unequivocal support of our major shareholders to mm-hmm. basically kind of break a few eggs. Like in there's the old metaphor, you've got to break a few eggs to, to, to make a good omelette. And so I started like breaking eggs and trying to solve those problems almost immediately. Um, but coming into a business with a team, even a small team of 20 people who've been doing the same thing the same way for three years and then expecting to be able to change that quickly, I think was naive on my part. Um, there's a lot of literature suggesting two things that I, I know now that I didn't know mm-hmm. then, which is that, Kind of in businesses, turnarounds quite often, the first year is very painful. Um, it's very hard to change things. It's very hard to get momentum in changes. Um, the second thing is that the people who kind of got the business in the hole it's in in the first place, never the people to get you out. So kind of letting go of people who were involved in the old model probably earlier, I probably would, would do again. This time we held on to too many things for too long. Um, and I think kind of, again, pivoting a startup with corporate shareholders and a pretty corporate board, although I'm part of the board, um, more difficult than it would be actually pivoting a nine-month-old startup that mm. hadn't spent quite a lot of money trying to solve its problems. And I think um, of the seven things, I literally only sold the seventh about two weeks ago. So by March this year, so in the first 12 months, it solved six of the seven problems and the seventh has literally only been solved about two weeks ago so these things take I mean, it comes back to people mm-hmm. like someone like me when someone says oh like what what are you really good at like i'm very tenacious mm-hmm. like predict like often i'm way too tenacious i hold on to things for longer than i should do i'm just i'm 
belligerently stubborn. <laughs> like I swam the English Channel just because someone said that I couldn't. <laughs> I'm like, I can do that. It took me four years, yeah. 20 hours a week to make that happen. Um, but I think sometimes in these things, like this again comes back to motivation, is that you, you need motivation, you need a big vision, you need to believe that what you're doing is actually the right thing, mm. you're going to make an impact, um, and you just need to be patient but persistent. So. And how were you able to, from the outside, diagnose those issues? Were they external things, business model, product? Once again, you had a few conversations. You could metrics you saw were out of line financially or internal metrics. How did you sort of know what those key priorities were before even kind of jumping in? Uh, there were seven structural things that related to the business. So you mentioned a couple of them, like business model, team. Um, that was two of them. Um, there are a couple of others that I won't go into, but things like majority corporate ownership, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a bit, of, bit off-putting to, to venture investors, uh, lack of clarity around IP, like ownership of intellectual property, that was a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but the, I mean, the seven things were were the seven things. Mm. Uh, I was able to diagnose them for, for two bases. The first one was that, like, I've been very well trained in identifying what problems are. I spent five years solving some very complex problems at Macquarie. I'm very good at seeing the root cause of of issues. Um, But also in working with Slingshot, I'd I'd seen thousands of startups and I'd unraveled hundreds of really good startups with big corporates. And so I knew what to look for. Um, and, And that was the basis for them coming and asking my opinion in the first place was, hey, we know you're really good at understanding this stuff. Want to know what you think about this? And so I just, I was just myself. I just told them what I thought about mm. it. And so Evergen grew 46% last financial year, growing revenue to nearly $6 million and making you one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So again, you've got in, you, you've had, already had your list, you've been empowered to actually change those things. And then what was it like as you were able to change, as revenue was able to grow, as like you said, you're able to fix some of those structural issues, um, you know, both the good and the, the bad of that sudden sort of growth and success, and I guess validating some of your initial ideas. Well, it's an interesting question and like full disclosure, that, that revenue growth, like we've we've absolutely crushed that revenue growth this year, but but it's been in a business model that's still partly the old business model that that that, that we're gonna kill. Mm. So for me, those kind of revenue growth numbers, that's not how I measure the success of this business. Like I measure the success of this business through other things like net promoter score from customers, which was 86 out of hundred last year. Um, repeat business like the fact that we've got 20 partners now selling evergen software for us because they think what we do is great um the fact that we're dealing with major utilities to bring together big virtual power plants that transform the way the energy system works like that i'll take that as a win um the revenue for me is kind of maybe this time next year if you ask me the question okay what's been the growth in your revenue for the business that you started Mm. we basically just started a new business in evergen in april which says that we're going to focus entirely on software for utilities. Like, so obviously starting from zero, like we've already, um, well, multiples of zero are pretty big, but <laughs> like we're doing reasonably significant revenues just that relate to those products and services that we didn't even do last year. Now, this time next year, we'll be doing somewhere between 10 and 20 times the revenue that we're doing now. And I think the measure that I think is relevant for software businesses is it's actually annual recurring revenue mm. or monthly recurring revenue. And, and I think... Currently, our monthly recurring revenue is doubling every month. Right, I see that as a measure of greatness. Not, I don't necessarily take too much plaudits for the growth in the old revenue that, that we didn't really believe in. Yeah, saying that, we we grew it by doing what we were doing a lot better mm. than we were doing it before. So, in the first six months of me taking over Evergen, we chucked out all the sales and marketing systems. We replaced all the people. We rescripted everything. We been every agency and external consultant that ever worked with the business. And we sort of went back to the basics mm. and said, hey, look, if this business that we inherited was going to be the business that we wanted, how do we make it as good as possible? We did all of those things and we've seen revenue grow. Um, this year, revenue will be significantly up on what we reported when we did the, did the kind of quiz. Um, but I think it's about value. And the, the question for me was always, like, are we going to make much of a dent in this global climate change problem by selling people solar and a battery? Or should we focus on actually stringing together all the batteries that exist in Australia and elsewhere in the world to make that part of the system so we can put dynamite under coal-fired power stations? I'm like, yeah, that's what we should be doing. That, that's a, that's a billion-dollar company mm. for sure. And you mentioned some of the, the push and pull between sort of the old guard and the new guard. So was part of that people were pointing to the old revenue and saying, look, we're growing, we've got 
millions of dollars, things are going well, why do you want to wreck it? And you're saying, yeah, but you're missing the billion dollar opportunity, but even though it starts at zero, is that part of the people wanting to hold on to what they had, the, the old model, which again, was oh, making sure. money versus like you trying to come in and say, hey, we have to let that go and smash it and sort of build something from scratch and not wanting to start from scratch. And that was that kind of Ab- Absolutely. And like that almost comes back to the first story I told you about change management, mm. which is that whole thing about my undergraduate thesis and communication of change is that it's very, very difficult. Like changing people's mind about stuff is very difficult. Um, so whether you're an investor in a business that's been doing the same thing for four years and that's what you believe it should be doing or whether you're a director or whether you're someone who was involved in the decision that that, that was the right thing to do with the business, like all of those people, for the most part, it took a long time to change their mind. And, and looking back, I, I probably would spend less time changing their minds. And I mean, you can't do this with your shareholders, but <laughs> with the people involved in making the, the business happen, like you can say goodbye to them much sooner than we did. That would have made life a lot easier. Yeah. That's right. We, we live and learn. And to be honest, if I look back and said, look, um, it's widely recognized that the first 12 months of turnarounds, like new CEOs don't achieve a lot. Um, I'd say we, me and my team, it's really the team that, that made this possible, have changed a lot in the first year. And we get now to where we're at, which is about 18 months. Mm-hmm. We've totally redefined the whole business. Got one of the best teams in any startup in Australia working with us. Highly motivated, great external investment. It's been painful, but you know what? Um, people like me don't get out of bed for easy, easy work. It's actually the challenge is part of the purpose. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously very passionate about the cause, about the mission, about the long-term future of the business, like you mentioned your daughters and their kids in the future. Um, and you also said you saw this angle of the renewables, the software kind of behind the um, hardware and the virtual power plants as being a big opportunity. Obviously, there's many opportunities in the sector, but what made you really convinced that that was that software angle and that play and, like you said, now selling it to utilities, that that's sort of a, a big opportunity? Oh, there were lots of things. I mean, before taking the job, I did about 40 hours. Like I took a week off and actually just spent a week immersing myself in what was happening um, globally. And there were lots of instances of like little proof points in, in developing nations where they'd sort of strung lots of solar and battery or solar together just using a wire. Mm. And they had people community sharing over a wire with little coin meters. And they're like, there's TED Talks about this. There's some Netflix documentaries about this. There's lots of YouTube videos. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you had companies or countries like Germany or China who'd taken a 10-year or 20-year view on the transition to renewables. And people like China had, in one city, 16,000 electric buses. Like, that's amazing. Germany completely decarbonized the electricity system um, because the leadership said they would. So I was sort of sitting there going, man, so like, there's going to be lots of different types of hardware in this transition. Like We know that. And mm-hmm. building hardware is a scale business. And if you're a utility who's needing to to kind of connect to and balance the needs and the competing priorities for all of these different individual assets, whether it be a small battery in someone's house or a big battery on a solar farm, whatever it might be, what you need is you need a layer, software layer, it's almost like middleware that can connect to all these things and give you a nice simple interface that you can kind of control and visualize and, and and you can then do smart stuff with all these assets without worrying about having to connect to hundreds of different types of things that I could definitely see that that was going to be a thing. Um, and I could see the one thing that was very clear to me is that the energy system in Australia um, kind of as evidenced in the bushfires, it's not particularly resilient. So mm-hmm. we have a system of a small number of big things connected together. And when one of the big things has a bad day, the whole power system goes out. Right, and we saw this in South Australia and Victoria last year. Like, And so I sort of believe very clearly that a much more resilient system would be lots of small things connected together in lots of small systems. And then if one of the small things goes out, it doesn't really matter. The rest of the system is still resilient. And so I could kind of clearly see that as a plausible future. And I could also clearly see that no one, no one was doing a good job of doing that. Um, so there's an opportunity. And I think... Some of the core technology that I inherited worked really, really well. Cyrus, smart people, did a good job. We were lucky we were well-funded. Um, so when the shareholders bought into this idea of the, the bigger goal and the bigger future, like we're all ready to go and we've hired some smart people to make that happen. So I'm kind of proud to say now that that's the business we're operating in. We've got utilities as clients and 
they use our software to control fleets of batteries as part of virtual power plants. So that's actually what we do now. Um, a year ago, or even six months ago, couldn't do that. And equally, no one else could do it either in Australia. Would you sort of liken it then to an operating system, essentially, in a computer, where it's interfacing between the hardware and other applications, or is that stretching too much, the analogy? Uh, I think a better analogy is it's, um, it's kind of middleware with a brain. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, operating systems, they're fair enough. Like we connect thousands of batteries and we give one API or one interface. Or But there's algorithms involved. Like we have trading strategies that we implement for clients on different assets. Like so there's a whole bunch of maths involved in what we do as well mm-hmm. as the kind of connective tissue layer. Um, there's actually a really good documentary or a lecture on YouTube called The Third Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. There's a very smart um, US economics professor who talks about the transition to renewable energy. And he basically describes this world where there's lots of physical assets, but what's missing is this sort of tissue layer of software connecting them all, mm-hmm. like connecting all the IoT devices as they relate to energy. That's basically what, what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are happy to be almost invisible in what we do as long as we're basically creating value from the assets um, that's sufficient to make the asset owner better off but also make the utility better off and make the system better off. Like We're, we're happy with that, happy to play that role. Mm. And so zooming out a little bit, you mentioned obviously you're involved advising a lot of early stage, pre-startup, startup, startup uh, you know, venture-backed companies. Um, so reflecting on that knowledge, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia and having you know, lived and worked abroad and and you know what are entrepreneurs in Australia doing well, and then where could they perhaps you know do better? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I've sort of been out of the ecosystem um, for about a year and a half now since I've been running Evergen. So all of that work I did with with early stage companies, the startups, the scaleups was when I was at Slingshot running those corporate innovation programs. And I think um, what seems to have happened is um, like corporates really aren't interested in working with early stage companies. Um, so, and most exits in Australia still occur at about the $30 million level to a corporate buyer, right? So I think what entrepreneurs need to realize is that um, they've got to build with the end in mind, right? So, so what is your path through this? So if you map out a five-year journey or a five to seven-year journey, which is typically what it takes to, to build a company. And just on that, by the way, my favorite podcast that's relevant to this is a thing called Acquired, which is mm-hmm. two US VCs talking about the path to exit for big venture-backed exits usually, so either IPOs or acquisitions of some of the greatest companies in history. And what's interesting about that is that the journey is generally seven to 12 years long from beginning to exit. Um, and so I think Australia, we're still starved with, with capital. Um, compared to the US. So people have got to start with a very, very laser focus in Australia. And you've got to be focused on how do I build enough proof, not not only that I'm solving a useful problem, but that I'm capable, me and my team are capable of making progress. Um, so that I think that's kind of important. I think gone are the days of the really easy seed money. Um, I think the whole COVID crisis will have will have probably killed lots of early stage companies because lots of funding dried mm-hmm. up in the in the three months immediately after kind of March and April. Um, but I think there's lots of great problems to be solved. I think it's actually easier than ever to start a company now. Like the platforms you need to basically build a tech company are free now. Like in my day when we started Search Party, we used to have to spend thousands of dollars every month on hosting or we actually had servers sitting in our office like the infrastructure costs of getting set up were like a hundred thousand dollars at the time so it's cheaper than ever to start but it's more competitive than ever and i think what i would encourage anyone thinking of starting a business to do is kind of think really really hard about it because it's a very very long commitment when you do your odds of success are minusculely small um i funnily enough still remember the conversation i had with my wife at the time when leaving Macquarie to, to go and join Search Party, which is, she said, hey, you know, we've got our third child on the way. And um, like, obviously, if you're taking a salary drop, that's going to hurt us. And so how long is it going to take? And I said, oh, it's three years and then we'll be billionaires. <laughs> and that was how naive I was as a 30-year-old mm. that we could take this global problem and we could actually turn it into a big company. Um, and we spent five years and $25 million and it still didn't, it still was not a win. Mm. It was it was a win in many levels, but it wasn't the sort of home run win that, that most founders are motivated to try and achieve. So I think these things are harder. So I'd find a great team. I would 
try and avoid taking external funding for as long as possible. So if you can seed fund it with some friends, ideally not friends and family, like get co-founders to co-fund it with you. Some of the best companies were started by three or four founders who each tipped in money. Mm -hmm. And then they were immediately focused on making the most out of that money because it was their money rather than taking external money and then being wasteful with it. Um, I think as soon as you take external funding on in an early stage business, it's much harder to change your course than it is if, you, if you're self-determining, mm. if you own your own business, it's much easier. Um, but no, like it's the resources are there. Like if you want to learn how to build a company, like learn how to do it really, really well. And your goal needs to be excellence in every respect, not mediocrity and just doing an average job of stuff because it'll just never work. Hmm. Absolutely. And so looking back again on, on the very interesting journey you've had across your life, and what advice would you give to a so 18 to 20-year-old now, again, who's maybe finishing high school, maybe finishing uni, and again, not sure which way to go, what to do, what would you sort of tell that person? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Work out what the one or the two things are that you are really, really good at and do them and find joy in being really, really good at those and, and get as good as you possibly can at the things you're really, really good at and find as many ways to use those skills as possible because that's ultimately where your long-term value comes from is the things you're really, really good at. I'm only good at two things. Um, seeing the answer to really complex, ambiguous problems in an uncertain environment is one of them. Mm -hmm. But the more valuable one is actually being able to inspire really good people to try crazy stuff. And that's, that's why I end up with these amazing teams that are solving these big complex problems is because that's what I'm good at. And would you say in a sense that kind of is those two skills put together is the art of the turnaround, cutting through the noise, seeing simplicity in a messy environment and then inspiring a team to sort of solve it? Is that combined, the skill of turning around the company or is that the Absolutely. part of a, the meta I'm, skill? I'm doing exactly what I was born to do every day. Um, and it's really hard, but I know that I'm... I'm playing to my strengths and I'm I'm creating as much value as I possibly could. Um, that's so I'm I'm on even on my bad days, like I know that I'm doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and I occasionally have these amazing days and I'm like, yeah, nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing, but it took me 20 years to work out that that's what I'm supposed to be doing, even though as a 16-year-old, I'd have told you that's what I was supposed to be doing. And what was the contrast when you're a management consultant where you're essentially giving advice but you're not on the hook at the end of the day for actually implementing it or even if the client implements it versus, again, being hands-on in the business and you are actually responsible not just for writing the report, giving the recommendations, doing the diagnosis, but also actually kind of, uh, you know, solving the problem, I guess, so to speak, and, and fixing the issue that you've come in or you've diagnosed and, and uh, being there for the end part. Yeah, I think that's something that most people that have ever done a consulting job will tell you is the reason why they stopped. <laughs> the, the joy comes out of consulting is that you basically provide these amazing solutions to problems and you give them to the people that own the problem. And uh, quite often they are not grateful. Quite often they don't implement to them to the as well as you would. And ultimately you don't get to benefit from, from the work you've done. You just walk out and then you go on to your next problem. You deal with another bunch of people who... More often than not, aren't grateful for you being there and don't implement what you suggest. And it's, it's one of those things, whereas like, it's why in all of the companies I run, one of my objectives is to have every single member of the team feel like an owner, mm -hmm. not just an employee, because it changes the way you behave and the way you think and the way you solve problems and the, the way you behave, how hard you work, how much you feel like you should be paid. Like It changes everything when you're an owner. Um, so... I think that's that's one of the great things about kind of starting or founding or working in an early stage business is if you if you're really on the bus and your financial outcome is linked to the results you create, not just the time you spend. I think that's really really powerful. Not for everyone though. Definitely and not and is everyone. there a balance there? Because when you literally at Search Party made everyone an owner, but then they're looking at the stock ticker every day, it kind of scattered their performance. So, so, so is there a balance where people have the mindset of an I owner without say... the literal? Own, and I understand yeah, you're not. You don't mean literal equity, but but sort of. I guess how do you cultivate that mindset without um, having everyone have equity? Because as we said before, you know, especially in a public company, that can actually create the opposite incentive to a ownership mindset and, and sort of being involved. No, I mean, that's, that's not quite what I said. So I didn't say that um, watching the stock price got in the way of people's performance. I said that it was challenging for morale. Okay, okay. 
because when you when you when the the world is valuing you in a way that reflects like you if your value is perceived to have gone down today compared to what it is yesterday when you know that nothing's really changed that's a hard thing to deal with psychologically there's a disconnect between how the world is seeing you and how you're seeing yourself right that that's the the challenge now i think in in early stage companies everyone should be an owner um I even big companies do it. Like when I was at Macquarie, I was an option holder, mm. right? You, your performance is linked, your remuneration is linked to the performance of Macquarie's shares every year. Right? It's, it's what people do. It's how, it's how you got to think about it. Okay. Now, it brings with it challenges, and I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to go oh, no, in about right. 60 seconds. Yeah. So um, if you just but, have any final uh, words you'd like to, to leave the audience with, sorry for going a bit over time, just, yeah, final words or thoughts about the future of Evergen and, um, or something for the audience to sit with? Yeah, sure. Uh, like, like Evergen, I think we're in a really good space right now. We've partnered with some of the most forward-thinking utilities in Australia and we're, we're starting to contemplate overseas. And I, I think we're lucky because climate change is here and we're part of the solution to climate change. And I think that's really important. Um, from a personal point of view, just reflecting on this year and some of the things that have happened, I think it's important for people to think that it's okay to focus on less things, like do less things. Mm-hmm. Like We did it this year in Evergen. We massively simplified our business. Um, stop doing a bunch of things just to focus on a much smaller number of high value things. And it's been really, really good for us as a business. It's been good for us as people just to know that we're focused on less things. But but doing less things is cool, but do them to the very best of your ability. And that is really what defines um, good in our world. Um, so stay safe, focus on being valuable and um, try and do things you're really good at. There's no point in being moderately good at what you spend all your time doing. It's no fun. You'll never be a winner. Um, So really focus on what you're really good at and, and have as much fun as you can. Perfect. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.